Support for CJSW podcasts comes from listeners like you. Visit cjsw.com and join thousands of people who make independent radio available in Calgary and beyond. This is David Barsamian, producer and host of Alternative Radio. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. Losing one's dominant social status can be deeply threatening. Many Republican voters, not all, believe that the country that they grew up in is being taken away from them. For many, that feels like an existential threat. That is what's driving the extremism of the Republican Party and ultimately what's fueling our country's polarization. The problem is that polarization can kill democracies. Donald Trump is a symptom of that polarization. He's not a cause of it, and his departure will not necessarily put an end to it. That's Stephen Levitsky, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Stephen Levitsky on Polarization Can Kill Democracy. It's axiomatic that political discourse in the United States is becoming more and more extreme. There's even talk of a coup. In textbook coups, martial law is declared, the internet and phones go dead, the opposition is jailed or killed. This is how we think of authoritarian regimes beginning. Yet Harvard professor Stephen Levitsky says, democracies may die at the hands not of generals, but of elected leaders. He lays out a four-part test for identifying authoritarian leaders. And they are rejecting democratic institutions, denying the legitimacy of political opponents, tolerating or encouraging violence and curtailing civil liberties. Levitsky notes, with the exception of Richard Nixon, no major party presidential candidate met even one of these four criteria over the last century. Donald Trump, Levitsky says, met all of them. If we are not careful, polarization can kill democracy. Our guest today is Stephen Levitsky. He's professor of government at Harvard and co-author of How Democracies Die. He spoke at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York in late 2019. And now, Stephen Levitsky. Political scientists have uncovered two pretty rock-solid facts about democracies. Uh, First of all, old democracies never die. And secondly, rich democracies never die. In fact, no democracy even remotely as rich or as old as, as America's has ever broken down. But we think there were at least three reasons to think we may have entered uncharted territory. First of all, uh, levels of income inequality in the United States have risen to levels unseen since before the Great Depression. Secondly, the United States has begun a transition that, to my knowledge, no democracy has ever successfully undergone. That's one in which a previously dominant ethnic group loses its majority status. I will return to that point. And third, of course, Americans have elected a president with visibly authoritarian instincts. None of that means that American democracy is dead. None of it means that American democracy is even necessarily dying. But it is clearly cause for concern. I think uh, it, it's, it's pretty clear that we can no longer take the stability of American democracy for granted. Now, democracies do not die like they used to die. 
Democracies used to die at the hands of men with guns. During the Cold War, during most of the 20th century, three out of every four democratic breakdowns took the form of a military coup. The generals come in, send the president uh, off packing, and form a military junta. Today, democracies die in a much more subtle fashion. They die at the hands not of generals, but of elected leaders, of presidents, prime ministers, who use the very institutions of democracy to then subvert it. They use elections and referenda. They use acts of parliament or Congress. They use Supreme Court rulings. This is Putin. It's Erdogan. It's Viktor Orban in Hungary. What's so dangerous about this electoral road to autocracy is that it happens behind a pretty credible facade of democracy. There are no tanks in the streets. The Constitution usually remains intact. Elections are still held. Congress continues to function. And as a result, many citizens are not aware or not fully aware of what's happening often until it's too late. So if democratic breakdown begins today at the ballot box rather than in the barracks, one of the keys to defending democracy, one of the keys to protecting democracy, lies in keeping autocrats from getting elected in the first place. And here political parties and political elites play a critical role. Parties are democracy's gatekeepers. Elected authoritarians very rarely historically get come to power on their own. Almost invariably, if you look back, they get a hand from at least one of the mainstream political parties. So in Italy in the 1920s, liberal leader Giovanni Gioletti, hoping to tap into Mussolini's mass appeal, included the fascists on his liberal party's list for parliament. German conservatives, as early as 1929, forged a working alliance with the Nazis, trying to, to draw on Hitler's grassroots appeal to shore up their own party's declining Base. In both of those cases, liberals in Italy, conservatives in Germany, mainstream political parties abandoned their gatekeeping role and let extremists in the door. Both cases obviously turned out to be a pretty tragic miscalculation. Now, historically, American parties have been pretty good. In fact, they've been phenomenally good gatekeepers. The United States has had no shortage of extremist demagogues on both the left and the right. Father Coughlin, Henry Ford, Huey Long, Joe McCarthy, George Wallace. Surveys show that each of the figures I just listed, at one point or another, enjoyed about 30% approval rating, which means that that's not far from where Trump was when he started his run for the presidency. But none of these figures met it even close to the presidency. They were kept out for a bunch of reasons, but fundamentally by the political parties and by the candidate selection process. As all of you know, prior to 1972, our presidential candidates were selected by party leaders in conventions, in what we often think of as smoke-filled back rooms. That system was not very open. It wasn't very inclusive. It wasn't very transparent. It certainly wasn't very democratic. But it was a pretty effective gatekeeping mechanism. Party leaders, party bosses knew the potential candidates because they'd worked with these guys. At this point, they were all guys. So they knew their strengths, they knew their weaknesses, they knew how they held up under stress, and they knew which ones were fit for office and which ones were demagogues. In fact, for all of its shortcomings, and the old candidate selection system had a ton of shortcomings, for all of its shortcomings, the old system had a perfect record in keeping demagogues out. The primary system that we adopted starting in 1972 is much more open, it's much more inclusive, it is much more democratic, I like it but it weakened party leaders' role as gatekeepers. And we saw this very clearly in 2016. Republican leaders, you may forget this, but they despised Donald Trump. 
They knew damn well that Donald Trump was unfit for the office of the presidency. But under the primary system, they had very few tools with which to stop it. Primaries are double-edged. They are more democratic, but they leave us more vulnerable to demagogues. Had the old convention system been in place in 2016, Donald Trump wouldn't have gotten anywhere near the White House. Now, electing a demagogue does not condemn us to democratic breakdowns. It's never a good thing. I wouldn't advise it, but never doesn't condemn us to democracy's death. This is where our institutions come into play, and I want to spend some time on that. Americans have a lot of faith in our Constitution for pretty good reason. We've got the oldest, arguably the most successful Constitution on Earth. Our Constitution has checked a bunch of very ambitious, very powerful, uh, and sometimes even abusive presidents in the past, from Andrew Jackson to Teddy Roosevelt to FDR to Nixon. But one thing that became clear researching this book is that constitutions by themselves are never enough to protect democracy. Even the most brilliantly con designed constitution on earth, we've got a pretty good constitution, does not just function automatically. Our con all constitutions everywhere have to be reinforced by strong democratic norms or unwritten rules. One of them is what we call mutual toleration. That's simply accepting the legitimacy of our partisan opponents. That means that no matter how much we disagree with our rival, no matter how much we personally dislike our rivals, we recognize both publicly and in private that they love the country as much as we do and that they have an equal and legitimate right to exist, to do politics, to compete, and if they win, to govern. In other words, we do not treat our rivals as enemies. It's a crucial distinction. The second norm, a little more complicated, is what we call institutional forbearance. Forbearance means refraining from exercising one's legal right. It is an act of deliberate self-restraint, an underutilization of one's power. We do not often think about forbearance in politics, but it is absolutely vital. Think about what the U.S. president constitutionally, legally, is able to do. The president can pardon whomever she wants, whenever she wants. Any president with a congressional majority can pack the Supreme Court. They do not like the ideological or partisan composition of the court. Pass a law expanding it to 11 to 13, fill it with allies. Perfectly constitutional. Uh, the president can circumvent Congress, make policy through executive orders, or by declaring a national emergency. The Constitution does not clearly prohibit such action. Or think about what Congress has the constitutional authority to do. Congress can shut down the government by refusing to fund it. The Senate can use its right to advice and consent to block the president from filling cabinet seats, to block the president from filling Supreme Court vacancies. And the House can impeach the president on virtually any grounds it chooses. My point here is that the president, or that politicians, excuse me, politicians can exploit the letter of the Constitution in ways that totally eviscerate its spirit. Court packing, partisan impeachment, government shutdowns, national emergencies. Legal scholar Mark Tushnet calls this behavior, using the letter of the law to subvert the spirit of the law, he calls this behavior constitutional hardball. You look at any failing or failed democracy in the world, and you will find an abundance of exactly this, constitutional hardball, Spain and Germany, in the 30s, Chile in the 1970s, contemporary Hungary, Poland, Turkey. What prevents a democracy from descending into a destructive spiral of constitutional hardball 
is this thing called forbearance. It is a shared commitment among politicians to institutional restraint, to not using the letter of the law to subvert its spirit. Two quick examples. Think about presidential term limits historically in the United States. Prior to 1951, the United States Constitution placed no limits on presidential re-election, which means that legally, American leaders could be president for life, just like Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. But for nearly 150 years, following a precedent set by George Washington, no president made any serious effort to pursue a third term. It was not the Constitution that prevented ambitious presidents like Jefferson, Jackson, and Grant from seeking a third term. It was a norm of forbearance. Or take the filibuster in the Senate. Filibuster is a pretty powerful tool. It can grind Congress to a halt, as we've learned in recent years. Um, but for most of the 20th century, the filibuster was rarely used. The Senate recorded an average of fewer than one filibuster a year between 1917 and 1960. Senators exercised forbearance. These two norms, a mutual toleration and forbearance, the soft guardrails of democracy. They are what help to prevent normal, healthy political competition from spiraling into the kind of partisan fight to the death that wrecked democracies in Europe in the 1930s and South America in the 1960s and 70s. Now, America has not always had soft guardrails, did not have them in the 1790s when partisan warfare between Federalists and Republicans nearly wrecked the Republic before it could take root. Uh, America's guardrails, to the extent that they existed, collapsed in the 1850s prior to the Civil War, and they remained weak through the end of Reconstruction. The 1860s and 70s were replete with constitutional hardball. Changes to the size of the Supreme Court in 1866 and 1869, a presidential impeachment in 1868, a contested and probably stolen election in 1876. Norms of mutual toleration and forbearance really only took hold in this country in the late 19th century. And it's worth taking just a second to think about why and how they took hold. Mutual toleration emerged after the Republican Party abandoned Reconstruction, which allowed the Democrats to establish Jim Crow in the South. Southern Democrats viewed Reconstruction and particularly black suffrage as an existential threat, and they fought like hell against it, which led to extreme polarization. It was only after the Republicans essentially gave up and abandoned Reconstruction, essentially taking racial equality off the political agenda that the two parties began to peacefully coexist. So the norms of mutual toleration and forbearance that undergirded our 20th century democracy, that undergirded the democracy we grew up in, emerged out of a profoundly undemocratic arrangement. The political exclusion of African Americans and the, the, the restriction of our political community, essentially, to white guys. With that caveat in mind, norms of mutual toleration and forbearance were pretty strong in the United States in the 20th century. Uh, Democrats and Republicans accepted one another as legitimate rivals, and with rare exceptions, they avoided destabilizing acts of constitutional horrible. So there were no impeachments, there were no court packing, there were no costly government shutdowns, Supreme Court nominees were approved even when the opposition party controlled the Senate, that took forbearance, and outside of wartime, there's a lot of wartime, but outside of wartime, presidents refrained from circumventing Congress through executive orders and national emergencies. So for more than a century, our system of checks and balances worked pretty well. But again, the system worked because it was reinforced by norms of mutual toleration and forbearance.
These two norms have been eroding over the last quarter century. There were signs of this in the 1990s. Newt Gingrich, who became House Speaker in uh, 1995, spent his career prior to that instructing his Republican allies to use terms like betray and anti-flag and traitor to describe Democrats. In other words, he encouraged his fellow Republicans to abandon the discourse of mutual toleration. Gingrich was also a master, an early master of constitutional hardball. He led the first major government shutdowns of the modern era. And of course, in 1998, the Republicans impeached Bill Clinton, arguably on a technicality. That was the first impeachment in 130 years. The erosion of mutual toleration, though, really accelerated during the Obama presidency. Republican leaders like Gingrich, Palin, Giuliani, Huckabee, Trump, began to tell their followers, both publicly and in private, that President Obama did not love America, that Obama and the Democrats were not real Americans. Maybe that Obama wasn't even American at all. Uh, just to give you one quote, Colorado Congressman Mike Kaufman said in a fundraiser, and I quote, I do, I think this is 2008 or 9, I do not know if Barack Obama was born in the United States of America, but I do know this, that in his heart, he's not an American. He's just not an American. Now, the U.S. has always had an extremist fringe, but this is no longer fringe politics. These were national Republican leaders. This was the party's 2016 presidential candidate. Leading Republicans were starting in the early 21st century to question or even deny the legitimacy of their Democratic rivals. That worries us because when mutual toleration disappears, politicians start to abandon forbearance. When we view our partisan rivals, not as rivals, but as enemies, when we view our partisan rivals as an existential threat, we grow tempted to use any means necessary to thwart them, to beat them, to stop them. And that's exactly what's beginning to happen. After the 2010 Tea Party election, the Republican Congress treated the Obama administration as an existential threat that had to be beaten at any cost. There were more filibusters during President Obama's second term than in all the years between World War I and 1986 combined. And it wasn't just trivial stuff. Congress twice shut down the government and at one point pushed the country to the brink of default. President Obama responded with constitutional hardball of his own. When Congress refused to pass immigration reform, when Congress refused to pass climate change legislation, he circumvented Congress and made policy through executive orders. That was technically legal, but it clearly violated the spirit of the Constitution. But the most stunning act of constitutional hardball of all, at least in my view during the Obama period, was the Senate's decision in 2016 not to allow President Obama to fill the Supreme Court vacancy created by Justice Scalia's death. That move was unprecedented since 1866. All that stuff happened before Donald Trump was elected president. So the problem is not just that Americans elected a demagogue in 2016. It's that we elected a demagogue at a time when the soft guardrails protecting our democracy were coming unmoored. So why is this happening? We argue that what's driving the erosion of our norms is extreme polarization. Over the last 25 years or so, Republicans and Democrats have come literally to fear and loathe one another. There's a um, famous, not particularly good, but famous survey from 1960 that, found, that asked people, uh, last Americans, whether, how they would feel if their kid married someone from another party. So in 1960, 5% of Democrats and 4% of Republicans, I might have this reversed, 
said that they would be bothered if their kid married someone from the other party. Today, that number is close to 50%. According to a survey, a Pew survey from last year, 49% of of, uh, Republicans and 55% of Democrats say the other party makes them afraid. And another study by by Liliana Mason and some colleagues found that 60% of Democrats and Republicans believe the other party is a danger to the United States. They don't just disagree with their health plan. They think the other party is a danger to the United States. We have not seen this level of partisan hatred since, since the end of Reconstruction. And it's not just traditional liberal and conservative polarization. People do not fear and loathe one another over taxes and health care. Today's partisan differences run much deeper than that. They're about racial and cultural identity. Our partisan identities have changed dramatically over my lifetime, over the last 50 years. Go back to 19, to the late 1960s or early 1970s, the Republican and Democratic, and Democratic parties' names are the same. They differed on a bunch of issues, but demographically and culturally, they were pretty similar. Both of them were overwhelmingly white and Christian. Three changes have occurred over the last half century. First of all, the civil rights movement led to a massive migration of Southern whites from the Democratic to the Republican Party, while African Americans, in many cases newly enfranchised, became mostly Democrats. Second, the United States experienced a massive wave of immigration, first from Latin America and then from Asia. Most of those immigrants and their kids have ended up in the Democratic Party. Uh, And third, since Reagan, evangelical Christians have flocked to the Republican Party. As late as the late 1970s, the evangelicals were evenly distributed between the parties. In fact, they were slightly more Democrat than Republican. Today, they're overwhelmingly Republican. So even though the parties' names have not changed, they've come to represent totally different, fundamentally different communities. Uh, the Democrats are sort of a weird mix of urban uh, secular whites and a range of ethnic minorities, while Republicans remain overwhelmingly white and Christian. So what? Why does that matter? It matters because white Christians are not just any group. Not only were they once an overwhelming electoral majority in this country, but they occupied not that long ago. They occupied in our lifetimes all of the top rungs of this country's political, economic, cultural, and social hierarchies. They filled the presidency, they filled Congress, they filled the Supreme Court, the governor's mansions. They were the CEOs, they were the newspaper, uh, the, the newscasters, the TV newscasters, the college professors. They were the faces of both the Democratic and Republican Party. Those days are long gone. But losing a majority, crucially, losing one's dominant social status can be deeply threatening. Many Republican voters, not all, believe that the country that they grew up in is being taken away from them. For many, that feels like an existential threat. That is what's driving the extremism of the Republican Party and ultimately what's fueling our country's polarization. Problem is that polarization can kill democracies. Research by political scientist Milan Sfolik shows that the more polarized a society is, the more we become willing to tolerate abusive or undemocratic behavior by our own side, as long as it's against the other guys. So when politics is so polarized that we view a victory by the other guys as something that's catastrophic, something that's unacceptable, beyond the pale, we start to justify using extraordinary means to stop that from happening. Things like violence, election fraud, coups. Americans have not reached the point of supporting coups. But we have reached a point where, according to exit polls from 2016, 
One out of four Donald Trump voters believed or said in exit polls, people who pulled the lever for Donald Trump, one out of four Trump voters said they believed he was not fit for the office of the presidency. One out of four Trump voters did not view him as fit for the office of the presidency, and yet they still preferred him to the Democrat. We've reached a point where, according to Gallup polls consistently since 2016, Republicans have a much more favorable view of Vladimir Putin than they do of Hillary Clinton. Those are dangerous levels of polarization. Donald Trump is a symptom of that polarization. He's not a cause of it, and his departure will not necessarily put an end to it. President Trump turned out to be every bit as authoritarian as advertised. He calls his critics enemies. Uh, he accuses them of treason. He's tried consistently to purge and to pack our law enforcement agencies and to use those agencies to investigate and punish his critics. He's flouted congressional authority and the rule of law. But Trump has faced pretty serious pushback from the media, from the courts, from our law enforcement agencies, from civil society, and from American voters. The 2018 election was a clear, important reminder that the United States is not like Russia, Hungary, Venezuela, or Turkey, places where authoritarian governments effectively steamrolled weak oppositions. The United States doesn't have a weak opposition. It has a strong opposition. That opposition now controls the House. That's the good news. The not-so-good news is that the underlying problems of polarization and norm erosion have not gone away. They persist. Again, our constitutional system of checks and balances only works where there exists a minimum of mutual toleration and forbearance. Without forbearance, without restraint, divided government pretty quickly descends into institutional warfare in which constitutional checks and balances essentially become weaponized. This is a world of stolen Supreme Court seats, of partisan impeachments, of government shutdowns, of declarations of national emergency. That, I think, is the principal danger that we face today. Our democracy is becoming utterly dysfunctional. All right, so what can be done? For one, I think most fundamentally, the Republican Party must change. It has to become a more diverse political party. As long as the Republicans remain overwhelmingly white and Christian in a society as diverse and diversifying as ours, it will be prone to extremist white nationalist appeals. I want to develop this point for a second because I think it's important. Democracy requires the parties know how to lose. That means when we lose an election, we accept defeat, we go home, we get drunk, and we get up the next day and we play again. Very simple, very important. But for parties to lose graciously, which is the norm I'm talking about, two conditions have to hold. First of all, parties have to believe that they stand a chance of winning again in the future. And secondly, parties have to believe that losing will not bring ruinous consequences. When politicians fear that they're not going to be able to win again in the future, or in, when they believe that defeat is going to bring catastrophe, the stakes rise dramatically. Politicians' time horizon is narrow, they throw tomorrow to the wind, and they use any means necessary to hang on to power today. In other words, desperation leads politicians to play dirty. Daniel, my co-author, found this dynamic in late 19th century Germany. German conservatives were terrified of giving the working class the right to vote. For them, giving the working class the right to vote meant not only the conservatives' electoral demise, but it meant the demise of the entire aristocratic order. So the conservatives in Germany played dirty. 
They used fraud and repression to hang on to power all the way through World War I. Or think about Southern Democrats in the aftermath of the Civil War. Reconstruction in the 15th Amendment brought widespread black enfranchisement across the South. African Americans were a majority or a near majority in most post-Confederate states. So their enfranchisement scared the bejesus out of Southern Democrats and their constituents. Not only did black suffrage threaten the Democrats' electoral dominance, but it threatened to overturn, at least potentially, the entire racial order. Facing what they perceived to be an existential threat, the Democrats in the South played dirty. Between 1885 and 1908, all 11 post-Confederate states passed laws or constitutional reforms that allowed governments to use poll taxes, literacy tests, property and residency requirements to effectively eliminate African-American voting rights. Black turnout in the South fell from 61% in 1880 to 2% in 1912. Unwilling to lose, Democrats stripped the right to vote from nearly half the population in the South, ushering in nearly a century of authoritarian rule in the post-Confederacy. We fear that something similar is happening to the Republican Party today. The Republicans' medium-term electoral prospects are not great. Uh, as I said, Republicans are an overwhelmingly white Christian party today, but white Christians are a declining portion of the American electorate. 1992, not that long ago, when Bill Clinton was elected, 73% of the electorate was white and Christian. By 2012, that figure was down to 57%. By 2024, it'll be less than 50%. But it's far worse than that, because younger voters are overwhelmingly Democrats. In the midterms, people aged 18 to 29 voted more than 2 to 1 in favor of the Democrats. 30-somethings voted nearly 60% Democrat. You're listening to Stephen Levitsky on Polarization Can Kill Democracy. This is Independent Alternative Radio. Stay tuned at the end to learn how you can get CDs, MP3s, PDFs of this program, as well as Levitsky's book, How Democracies Die. You can call us at one 800 444 1977. Our website, alternativeradio.org. But the problem is not just that, Dem- that Republicans potentially face a bleak electoral future. It's that the Republican base has come to view defeat as catastrophic. As I noted earlier, many Republican voters fear that they're on the brink not just of losing elections, but losing their country. The very idea of a white Christian America seems to be slipping away. So slogans like take our country back, make America great again, reflect that sense of peril. So like the old Southern Democrats, Republicans have started to play dirty. In state after state after state, Republican governments are taking steps to make it harder for lower income and minority voters to to register and to vote. They're closing polling places universities in predominantly African-American neighborhoods. They're purging voter rolls. They're making it harder to register. Since 2010, more than a dozen states, all of them Republican-led, have adopted strict voter ID laws that are clearly aimed at dampening turnout among poor and non-white voters. Georgia Republicans used a voter suppression tactic in last year's gubernatorial race, including a Jim Crow-style exact match law 
that basically allowed state officials to throw out any voter registration form that was not an exact match with other state uh, documents. So if you uh, sign some state form as putting your middle initial and then forgot the middle initial in the voter registration form, they could throw it out. Early this year, Texas Republicans tried to purge the voter rolls of nearly 100,000 Latinos. In North Carolina, after Democrats won the governorship in 2016, the Republican legislature passed a series of last-minute reforms to pack state institutions and to, weak, uh, to weaken the incoming governor, including stealing two seats on the state court of appeals. Wisconsin Republicans followed a pretty similar playbook after Scott Walker lost the governorship in 2018. Uh, so it's not just Trump. Republicans across the country are starting to play dirty. The only way out of this mess is for the Republicans to become a more diverse party. Once Republicans learn how to compete for urban, for secular, for non-white voters, they'll become more confident about winning up future elections, and they'll become more comfortable or less fearful of a multiracial America. When that happens, Republicans should de-radicalize and our politics should depolarize. When will that happen? That will happen when Republicans lose. One thing we know about political parties is that parties change their strategies when their current strategies fail, when they lose elections. So Republicans are most likely to change course when they receive, or after they receive, a series of electoral shellackings. But there's a hitch. Our institutions give Republicans a crutch. Both the Electoral College and the Senate are biased towards sparsely populated territories. And because the Senate approves Supreme Court nominees... That means the Supreme Court is also at least somewhat biased towards sparsely populated territories. Now, for the first two centuries of our history, that bias sucked for New York, and it it benefited uh, states like Wyoming and Vermont. But it didn't have a partisan effect because both parties had urban and rural wings. So the the, the, the essentially rural bias of our institutions didn't benefit one party over the other. It's only in the last generation that our parties have split so overwhelmingly along urban rural lines. Today, the Democrats are overwhelmingly a party of big metropolitan centers. Big metropolitan centers are what turn states blue. And the Republicans are overwhelmingly based in sparsely populated territories. That means the Republicans, and this was not their fault, it means the Republicans have a systematic advantage in the Electoral College, the Senate, the Supreme Court. And that opens up the possibility of some form of minority rule. The last two Republican presidents, as you know, have come to office despite losing the popular vote. Democrats pretty overwhelmingly won the popular vote in the Senate in 2016 and 2018. They still don't control the Senate. um, And they're unlikely to control the Supreme Court for years to come. In the long run, over time, that gap between who gets the most votes and who holds public office, who has the most power... Uh, could seriously erode the legitimacy of our democratic institutions. But in the short term, it causes another problem. It causes another problem. It gives the Republicans a crutch. It gives them a way to hold on to power, to defend their interests, without having to win national electoral majorities. In other words, the existence of strong counter-majoritarian institutions weakens the Republicans' incentive to adapt. It creates a temptation for them to hold up in their white Christian bunker and rely on federalism, the Senate, and the courts to defend themselves. That will not work forever, 
but it could work long enough to inflict a hell of a lot of damage on our institutions. So the question is, what should Democrats do in the meantime? There's actually been a pretty vibrant debate among progressives around that issue. Uh, one idea that I'm sure all of you have, have heard that's gained traction in the last couple of years among, among progressives is that Democrats need to start playing dirty. They need to learn how to fight like Republicans. The argument goes something like this. Democrat, if, if Republicans are going to continue to play constitutional hardball, Democrats must play tit for tat for their own survival. If they don't, they will be the victim of an endless series of sucker punches. Using forbearance while the other guy is playing hardball is basically like entering a boxing ring with a hand tied behind your back. So the argument goes, Democrats have to use all the tools in the toolbox, government shutdowns, partisan impeachment, ram through D.C. and Puerto Rico statehood. Uh, there's even a movement, a pretty serious one, to pack the Supreme Court the next time the Democrats control the presidency in the Senate. We think that would be a mistake. A tit-for-tat strategy would inevitably lead to escalation, which would only accelerate the politicization of our institutions and the erosion of our democratic norms. Once that spiral of escalating constitutional hardball begins, it becomes very, very difficult to stop. If you look at other cases historically, from Spain in the 30s to Chile in the early 70s to uh, Venezuela and Turkey in the early 21st century, that sort of escalation does not end well. Democrats should keep in mind their time horizons. They should keep in mind that their medium-term prospects are much better than Republicans. Their electorate is younger, their electorate is growing. The single, arguably, the single greatest threat to the Democratic Party's medium-term prospects is an escalating conflict that puts our institutions at risk, one that either destroys our democracy or leaves it utterly dysfunctional. If Democrats start to fight like Republicans, there's a good chance they'll be hurling themselves down that very path. Over the last year or two, many people have argued correctly, I think, that it would be far better to defeat Trump at the ballot box in elections than to impeach him. But we now have evidence that Trump's trying to recruit foreign intervention into to sway the 2020 election. He is undermining the integrity of the 2020 election, which strikes at the very heart of democracy. Joe Biden says that the Trump presidency is an aberration, that it's a, an accident of history. He is wrong. The United States is in the middle of an immense political earthquake. We've begun a transition again that, to my knowledge, no democracy has ever successfully undergone, one in which a previously dominant ethnic group loses its dominant and majority status. I think there's good reason to think that we will be the first democracy to successfully make that transition. But to get there, we are inevitably going to have to pass through a period of intense, polarizing reaction. That's where we are right now. During that period of intense polarizing reaction, Americans cannot afford to be reckless with our institutions. We have far, far too much to lose. Let me stop there. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. It was chilling. But there was also a note of optimism in the part of your talk where you talked about the Republicans losing and learning from it. That's your positive message. But I want to ask you why that hasn't happened already. I want to ask you why it didn't happen after they lost 
hugely in the 2008 and 2012 elections. And I hope you'll have an answer to that. The possible answer that I don't like is that the rot had already gotten too deep, that they had been taken over by the, by the forces of darkness following the 2010 Tea Party election, and that they were unable to learn the lessons that you hope they will learn if they lose the 2020 election. Uh, that is a uh, not only terrific but a terrifying question. Um, so first of all, the Republicans almost learned after losing the 2008 and 2012 election. The party leadership, after Romney lost to Obama, commissioned a study, uh, which has been described as the Republican Party autopsy of the 2012 election. The Republicans need to appeal to younger voters, to urban voters, to women, to secular voters, to non-white voters, if they're going to survive. They cannot continue to go on as a white Christian party. Uh, why did they not fully learn? In part, because Republican primary voters had other ideas. Our parties are, are in, in many respects, our party organizations, our party leaderships are very weak. And party leaders no longer, they never really had many tools, but they certainly don't have tools to impose their will on candidates. And this, again, the, the primary process brought, pulled the Republican Party in a completely different direction. Um, well, let me first step back and say you may be right. There's a scenario in which uh, just the opposite happens. And we're already seeing this, that as the Republicans lose, where they're losing is actually in the, in the purple areas, in the blue areas. They're losing in the suburbs. They're losing their moderates. And so as, as the Republicans continue to lose, they're becoming a party that's more and more centered in deep red districts, places where it's going to be a long time before the, it's going to be a long time before the Republicans lose Mississippi uh, and, and Alabama. And increasingly, as they even lose, as they lose Orange County, California, as they lose Bucks, Bucks County, Pennsylvania, as they lose Dallas, Texas, and maybe even all of Texas, the Republican Party in the medium term will, could be shrunken down to the deepest, I wouldn't say the deepest rod, let's call it the deepest red. So things could quite plausibly get worse before they get better. Um, but I think a series of elections have been pretty close in general over, uh, over the last 20, 25 years. So the kind of decisive and repeated electoral shellacking that I'm talking about, I'm talking about a 1964, 1984, 1972 kind of shellacking more than once. That's harder to do than it was. Um, yeah, let me stop there. My question is, if social and cultural change is the main force that's driving uh, this polarization, why are we seeing this phenomenon kind of worldwide? Like we're seeing it in Europe, we're seeing it specifically in Brazil, that might not have those uh, same kind of forces driving it. And if they are the same kind of forces, what are some of those countries doing that are, might be more successful than what we're doing to overcome the problems of forbearance and mutual intolerance? I, I wouldn't overstate the degree to which we're seeing this phenomenon worldwide. Uh, oftentimes we see a uh, sort of a new 
and shiny phenomena that scares us or that we find very compelling in a few cases, and we start to see it everywhere, and we overgeneralize. I'm not convinced that what's happening in Brazil is the same thing that's happening in the United States. However, in the Western democracies, clearly there is a phenomenon. There's a phenomenon in which you're seeing the rise of a, a, a sort of cosmopolitan urban metropolitan center and a, and, a, and a harsh reaction on the part of more rural peripheral areas. Um, there is in most Western democracies a, a racial and cultural element to it because most Western democracies have either experienced a fair amount of immigration uh, and migration over the last few years or their political leaders have convinced them that it's happening even though it's not happening very much like in Hungary and the Czech Republic. So there has been a common shock across Western democracies. I don't think this generalizes much to Latin America, for example. Uh, and I think we're just beginning to, to come to grips to, with exactly why we're seeing that, that kind of polarization. The other thing that I think is happening across the board, and this does include Brazil, is that political establishments are weakening. By political establishments, just I, I'm thinking about political parties, traditional interest groups, and traditional media. If you go back 50, 60 years, uh, in any democracy, politicians, any politician, uh, th those institutions, political parties, interest established interest groups, and, and, and traditional media, newspapers, and the, you know, ABC, NBC, CBS, the United States, they more or less monopolized 50 years ago, 60 years ago, the resources that a politician needed to get elected and to sustain a career. You simply could not ignore the establishment, whether it's France or Brazil after it democratized, or the UK or Canada or the US, you could not ignore or thumb your nose at the establishment and, and, and expect to sustain a political career. Um, you had to be on good terms with the party leaders to get nominated before 1972. You pretty much had to be on good terms with Walter Cronkite if you're going to get the, the airtime to, to reach voters. And you had to conform to certain normative and policy uh, boundaries uh, to get finance, to get elected. Over the last 50 years, the power, the monopoly that the establishment had over the resources politicians need has been eroding. Establishments, for better or worse, have been losing that monopoly. That means that when, whereas 50 or 60 years ago, politicians had to be responsive to two constituents. They had to be responsive to the establishment and they had to be responsive to voters. Today, increasingly, politicians can pay attention to voters. They can be responsive to voters. They don't have to care very much about what the establishment thinks. They can give the voters what they want. That is a profoundly democratizing process. Um, voters, in some sense, had the, the, the balance of power between voters and establishments has shifted towards voters. That also makes our democracies more vulnerable to demagogues. Um, the, the, and, and that is a place where the United States and Brazil are, in fact, similar. I don't understand how you have a public conversation when people feel it's okay to make up whatever they need to to support their argument. How, how does that result in a debate that allows people to make an informed decision? It's pretty hard. That, that's what we're, that is precisely what we're talking And this has, there, there, are, there are a lot of reasons why the sort of the why we're seeing this change in discourse and this and this increasing difficulty or unwillingness to separate truth and fact, but one of them is is polarization. We become in a context of extreme polarization, 
When we think the other side is, is, is evil, is the enemy, is dangerous, we are much more likely to believe lies about them and to spread lies about them than if they're just the other party that it sucks if they win, but uh, we can deal with it. So polarization is making us much more receptive to lies. Obviously, we're being exposed to much more through, through social media. But again, I would point to, if I, if I had to point to a master variable, it would, be, it would be polarization, that the acceptance of lies is in good part a product of polarization. I wanted to ask about what role our current economic system plays into this, because you've identified this you know, issue of extreme polarization related to racial and cultural identity and that um, white Americans feeling extraordinarily threatened to losing their dominant position. Is there not maybe a need to think about the role of, of the economic system, for example, uh, Democrats losing union workers, working class voters in the last election, um, and yeah, just any potential changes needed in that regard because you haven't, it hasn't really been, been brought up. Yeah, no, one of the critiques of our book, we aimed for parsimony in our book. Um, we, we tried to make a, a sort of a clean explanation that focused on, on a few big causes, and therefore there are a bunch of very real causes or very real problems that we set aside in the name of, of parsimony, and, and growing inequality is, is definitely one of them. Um, it, it's, I would say, not so much our economic system, but, but the policies championed and, and maintained by, by policymakers, really in many Western democracies, but particularly the United States over the last 40 years, have led, uh, one, to dramatic increase in income inequality, and two, to stagnation for 40% of our society. The bottom 40% uh, in this country has not seen any income gains since the 1970s, two generations of stagnation. And there's a big debate about whether it's, is it race or is it class that's driving polarization? Uh, in my view, economic inequality is, is secondary, but there's no question that the frustration and the perceptions of unfairness created by the growing inequality and the decline in social mobility across much of this country has exacerbated the problem of anger, made people more prone to right-wing populist appeals, uh, and more prone to, to anti-systemic appeals. So there's no question that it has exacerbated the problem. We don't think it's the fundamental problem. If you look at Trump's electorate, it's actually very diverse. It's not just low-income white losers from, from globalization. There are a lot of people who are pretty well off who voted for Trump. So, but there's no question that it's an exacerbating factor. If there's always an advantage to be gained by parties ignoring restraint and these democratic norms, then what incentive is there to follow them in the first place besides just like goodwill or playing fair? Great question. Why, why should anybody follow restraint? It's most likely to occur when politicians, be, because of their parties, have longer time horizons, when they expect to be playing the game at round two, three, and four. If I know I'm playing you on tomorrow and next Monday and next Thursday... I might be slightly less likely to try to cheat you today. That's one reason. The, 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 other, the other factor that contributes to uh, or makes it easier to do that is essentially social homogeneity. It, is a, it was a lot easier in the good old days when the political community was essentially confined to white Christian men to, to maintain a set of norms of reciprocity 
than it is in a big, much more diverse society. That is our challenge. We must somehow get back to norms of restraint in a in a, in a society of diversity and racial equality because there's no there's, ain't no going back. I wonder, is there any question why you de-emphasize men with arms so much and why you don't pay much attention to the impact of the financial crisis of 2008 and the previous one of 1929, which had such effects on uh, democracy by virtue of its encouragement of fascism, you could Look, say the, to that? The, the patterns of partisan polarization that we focus on, uh, the, the, the realignment of our party system along certain racial, cultural, geographic lines began way before the financial crisis, might have been slightly accelerated by the financial crisis, but were not caused by the financial crisis. The voting patterns in, uh, in the U.S., uh, part, partisan identification part, and partisan voting did not, was not dramatically changed by the 2008-2009 crisis. It helped to defeat the incumbent party in 2008. There's no question that it uh, exacerbated uh, frustration and anger and perceptions of unfairness, but it did not create the fact that our party identifications reflect these much, much broader social identities and, and, and communities. So I don't think it's the prince. It was an accelerant. I don't think it's the principal problem. Men with arms. I mean, I'm not one who believes that, that fascism is around the corner. The United States has a um, pretty effective state and one that thus far has shown itself capable uh, of controlling the men with arms. Obviously, in a, in a context as, uh, as polarized and as hostile as we face now, one has to worry about men with arms. What will happen if uh, Trump loses the election and he declares that he was, had the election stolen from him and he declares it a coup? Could there be violence? Of course there could be violence. Will we descend into civil war? I think probably not. Uh, I think the U.S. state thus far remains capable of, of controlling violence. That's why the men with guns didn't come up. Please join me in thanking Professor Nelson. Thank you very much. That was Stephen Levitsky on Polarization Can Kill Democracy. He spoke at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York in late 2019. Stephen Levitsky is professor of government at Harvard and co-author of How Democracies Die. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and supported solely by individuals just like you. Ralph Nader calls AR Audio Energy for Democracy. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs of today's program, Stephen Levitsky on Polarization Can Kill Democracy, and for his book, How Democracies Die, just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. We're offering free of charge MP3s, PDFs, and printed transcripts of today's program. 
just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. Our website again, alternativeradio.org. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with Curtis Mayfield. People, get ready. So people get ready for the train to Jordan. Picking up passengers coast to coast. Faith is the key. Open the doors and bottom. There's hope for all among those love the most. alternativeradio.org alternativeradio.org we too are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, mp3s or cds of our programs so we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there hello, hello what is it? CJSW this is Crispin Glover you are listening to CJSW 90.9 FM. Thank you. Thank you. One more. Thank you. Thank you.